I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to True Crime and Consequences, where we are covering the West Memphis 3 case. We left off at the end of Jesse's trial. I know it didn't seem like we covered a ton of the trial, but honestly, it was unfortunately a pretty cut and dried trial. They presented his quote unquote confession, and that was really about it. It put the nail in his coffin, unfortunately. Well, since everybody had already seen it. Yeah. So we are going to pick up now with Damien and Jason trial, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, the co-defendants in the West Memphis Three case in the murders of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch in West Memphis, Arkansas. Damien and Jason's trial started on February 28, 1994. Each was charged with three counts of capital murder. Now, they all had numerous alibi witnesses for the night of the murder, including a friend who had spoken to Damien on the phone for several hours that evening during the time that the alleged murders occurred. And they had phone records to prove it. Okay. So since Jesse had refused to testify against Damien and Jason, his taped confession couldn't be used in their trial. And it wouldn't have been able to be used anyway because he had recanted the confession. So at this point, the police are like, crap, we need a motive. Shit. In comes satanic ritual murder. Everyone's favorite 1990s motive. But they need to prove it. Right. Right? So they call Dr. Dale Griffiths. Who's Dr. Dale Griffiths? He is an occult expert, I use the term expert loosely, who had a PhD in occultism from, I believe it was Columbia Pacific University. What's Columbia Pacific University? I'm so glad you asked. It's a mail order university. And they give PhDs? They They give masters and PhDs. Wow. But you don't take any classes. And Dr. Griffiths testified in court, open court, that he had taken no classes. So how did he get a PhD? Is it just one of those diploma mills? He paid for it. You pay the money, you get a diploma. This is the the occultist who in the 90s had quite the career of being on, you know, very popular television shows like Geraldo and several other things talking about satanic panic. He was one of the biggest proponents of satanic panic in the 80s and 90s. Ah. Um, he did the talk show circuit, yo. He's making the money. Making that money. Having his 15 minutes. Making that money. So he gets called as a witness in Damien and Jason's trial. Again, I want to reiterate, he testified under oath that he'd never taken any classes. But How? he's an expert. But he's a PhD. He's a doctor. My God. If that's who we're using to prove someone's guilt, I can't. They had no chance. They had no chance. They've got those letters after your name. You're good. You're good. You're an expert. As long as you have PhD, you're good. In fact, Jason's attorney, Paul Ford, tried to argue about his mail order PhD that was bought and paid for. I would expect one. 
that his testimony should be thrown out because he's not an expert. But the judge didn't agree. He said he didn't think that you needed a degree to be an expert as long as you can show, you know, some sort of expertise. And I'm like, well, I consider myself an expert in true crime. Does that make me a lawyer or a cop? No, it makes you an expert in true crime. So I have a PhD in true crime. Can I buy that? Is that a, a degree I can, I can buy? I can print you out one. Okay, you It'll just make good. me one. I'll yeah. hang it on the wall. You're now the I'm true doctor. Crime I'm Dr. Kari Current. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a well, PhD well, in a, true criminology. In, 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 in defense of the judge, it is true. You can be an expert in a field without having a degree. And that is true. And that's why I didn't really necessarily now, hold the, it against the judge. Per whether se. the field has any basis in reality is the next question. I don't think occultism is really... I mean, is there such a thing as the occult? Absolutely. Is there such a thing as Satanism? Yes. Is there such a thing as Wicca? Of course. Is there such a thing as OTO? Yes, there is. I have a friend who's one. But some right-wing conservative uber-Christian guy who bought his PhD through the mail claiming to be an expert in the occult is not someone I would use in a triple murder, capital murder trial. Just seems a little risky to me, but unfortunately, it worked for the prosecution. So he tested Dr. Griffiths, Dr. Dr. Griffiths. It's not a doctor. It's like Dr. Freaking Phil. Okay, anyway, he testified that the murders were occult in nature, that Damien had exhibited behaviors consistent with satanic worship. Um, and it is true that Damien had a admitted fascination with numerous religions, including Catholicism including Wicca, which is what he was practicing at the time, and that for a good chunk of his life, he had actually wanted to be a Jesuit priest. Hmm. And he was raised in a very Christian area, in a Christian household. I mean, he, he, but he liked to explore other belief systems. He was fascinated with, the, with, with different religions. And yeah. he, he abhorred, you know, the conventional organized religion, as I do. So I relate to that quite well. Um, but one thing that he wanted to make very clear in court, Damien did and his lawyers did, is that at the time he was a practicing Wiccan, which is an incredibly peaceful religion, who doesn't even believe in God or the devil, and is completely nonviolent. Yeah, but you tell a, a I know, we're talking about the Bible Belt. We're talking about the Bible Belt. I know. You tell a jury full of Christians that you are, you know, Wiccan, they hear witch. Which well, means I mean, and devil technically worship. that's true. But in their but minds, that means devil white worship. White witches and dark witches, and they're two completely different things. But whatever, that's getting into theology that I don't want to do. So, so in the course of the trial, the prosecution paraded many witnesses in front of the jury. Unlike Jesse's trial, that didn't have a ton of witnesses. Damien and Jason's, however, had an abundance of witnesses. Most notably were two unidentified teenage girls who asked to be anonymous when they testified who claimed to have overheard Damien supposedly confess to the murders in some random conversation they heard on the street. I don't know. I mean, it, it's super flaky. Several of the police officers, of course, that investigated the, the murders and had had interactions with Damien and Jason and Jesse. A young man by the name of Michael Roy Carson and, of course, Vicki Hutchison, who we talked about earlier, Right. I told you she'd come back to to play, and and this is where she comes in. But uh, so, Michael Roy Corson 
Let's talk about him. He'd been incarcerated in juvenile detention with Jason Baldwin after he had been arrested. And uh, he was in there for his own string of problems. He was a drug addict and he'd done some, you know, breaking and entering and, you know, typical teenage drug addict crap. He claims that one day he and Jason were playing cards, uh, just killing some time and talking. And in the course of the conversation, he asked Jason if he'd killed the kids. And Jason emphatically denied it. Said, no, absolutely not. I would never do something like that. You know, that kind of thing. So, you know, Michael Carson's like, all right, cool, whatever, that's fine, right on, let's keep playing cards. So they kept playing cards, and then that was the end of it. Well, the next day, they were hanging out again, and they were talking, and he asked him again for some reason. But this time, allegedly, not only did Jason admit to killing the kids, but he went into grotesque and graphic detail about what they did to the kids. Oh. Oh, and I'm talking, when I say graphic detail, here's a quote. Here is what Michael Carson said in open court. That Jason told him, quote, he dismembered the kid, drank the blood from the penis, and put the balls in his mouth. Dismembered the kid? Nobody was dismembered. Okay. In case y'all forgot. When asked by the prosecuting attorney why he had kept quiet for so long at that point, he said that he kept quiet until he seen the families on TV and how brokenhearted they were, and that he's, quote, got a soft heart and couldn't take it. Did he get something out of that testimony? He claims no. He was asked in court if he received anything, and he claims no. However, Paul Ford, Jason's attorney, would later say, well, he openly questioned Mr. Carson's motives and truthfulness in open court. But he later would reveal that a drug and al- a local drug and alcohol counselor who had worked with Mr. Carson in the past had voluntarily called him when he heard that Michael Carson was going to be testifying in court um, and explicitly told him that Mr. Carson was a liar and had gotten information about the case from him, not from Jason Baldwin, in addition to every night at the juvenile detention facility when all the kids were in the like the common area where the TV was, they had the news on. Ah, uh, so he could get all the information he needed there. Exactly. Now, as an aside that we will talk more about later, but as an aside, Michael Carson has recanted his statement and publicly apologized to Jason in the early 2000s, saying he was on heavy drugs at the time and that the police had manipulated him into testifying. What I think probably happened is that he was up on all these charges and they told him, and uh, gee, he got out after that. So yeah, I wonder why he testified. Now, here's where Vicki Hutchinson comes in. That's I always in. say about jailhouse confessions. Mm-hmm. We were talking about that in our introduction piece. Yeah. Yeah, there. So here's where Vicki Hutchison comes back into the story. She was called for Damien and Jason's trial as well. And now remember, in the last episode, we talked about how she had told the police that she talked to Damien in person and he had made no incriminating statements and everything was fine. Right. Right. Well, now, In between telling them that and Damien and Jason's trial, she still claims that that occurred, but that after that, she and Jesse went with Damien to an event called an Espot, which, for those of you who don't know uh, the Wiccan religion or anything about witchcraft, is basically just a name for a gathering of witches. So she claims that Damien and Jesse took her to this gathering of witches outside of West Memphis where there were people dancing, chanting, and taking their clothes off 
She got really uncomfortable, so she claims asked Damien to take her home, and he did. Another aside, Damien had neither a driver's license nor a car, and she claims that he drove her home. Now, I'm not saying that a teenager without a license or a car has never driven before, but it's just an aside. She claims he drove, but he didn't drive, if that makes sense. So that was her testimony, that, that they took her to this thing that basically confirmed that he was involved in satanic rituals or whatever bullshit yeah, they were trying to sling devil at this worship point. stuff another aside similar to mr carson vicky recanted her testimony in 2004 claiming that she'd lied on the stand to protect herself from the theft charges that she'd been facing at the time she said damien was just a normal kid and that she was just a big liar and those are quotes. so to get out of some theft charges she got to deal with the police Testify against these boys. And make up a story. And make up this story to put them in prison for murder. Yep. So I can get out of a theft charge. Wonderful characters in this story. (sighs) I know. And it's a never-ending stream of bullshit, because next we have Dr. Frank Peretti. Dr. Frank Peretti is a real doctor, by the way. He was the assistant forensic pathologist for the uh, Arkansas State Crime Lab. However, he was not actually board certified. Because apparently in the state of Arkansas, you get five chances to pass your board exams. He failed twice and just opted not to take it again. So he could never, that, what that basically means is he could never be the actual, like, state forensic pathologist. He could only ever be the assistant state forensic pathologist. Okay. My point is he's... he's the assistant and he failed twice. Uh-huh. And then just opted not to take it again for personal reasons. He's their expert. He's their expert, yeah. Okay. He painted a horrendous picture at trial of what happened to those kids. I mean, he claimed that Chris Byers died from blood loss after his scrotum was removed, yet there was no blood at at the crime scene anywhere. They couldn't find anything. Nothing. No blood. Which you would think they would be able to find something if he had died from blood loss. Exactly. That That's what I'm saying. That his version of bit. what occurred does not match up with evidence. He claimed that all three boys had been raped, yet there was no evidence to prove they were raped other than all three boys were suffering from slight anal dilation, which, according to every forensic pathologist I've heard from, happens post-mortem. Muscles relax. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where was I? Sorry, I lost my... I'm trying to read off some notes here so I have at least an idea of where I'm going. Uh, so yeah, they weren't raped. He claimed that this big serrated hunting knife that the prosecution had presented as the potential murder weapon was the murder weapon. So a little backstory on this hunting knife. Somehow in the course of the investigation into Damien and Jason and Jesse, they of course talked to their families and Jason's mother, Gail, had in passing told them that um, because they had asked something like, does Jason have any knives, you know, or something like that. And she indicated that Jason had had a hunting knife, but she did not approve of him having it. So the year prior in 1992, she had actually taken it out and thrown it into the lake behind their trailer. Okay. Year prior. I need everyone to hear that. Okay, so she says it was a year prior she threw it out there. Because she didn't want him to have it. Okay. Or whatever. They sent a dive team to the lake and pulled the knife out within 30 minutes. Okay. 
guess who claimed it was the murder weapon? John Fogelman stood there and told the jury that this was the murder weapon. He even compared it to photos on the boys' bodies of like some scratch injuries that they had. And then he took an, it was this big moment in the trial where he took an orange and he took the serrated parts of the knife and he starts slapping the orange with the knife, trying to replicate these marks on there. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm like, oh my God, okay. So he knew where the knife was. He knew why it was there. He knew how long it had been there. And he still stood in court and claimed it was the murder weapon. And claimed it belonged to Damien. So This is how messed up this case is, you guys. So he just... He lied. He fucking lied. Or... <laughs> or he straight up didn't believe the mother. Well, that could be too, I suppose. I mean... But he wouldn't have even known that that knife was there if she hadn't told him. Yeah. I'm just saying that maybe in his head he twisted it around I'm to sure. where... Well, he's a twisted individual, she, so I'm she, sure that's probably true. She's trying to, you know... The point of the matter is, there was no actual physical evidence anywhere at the crime scene that connected any of the boys we now refer to as the West Memphis Three to this case, with one exception, and it's not really evidence. Let me explain why. The prosecution tried to claim that a microscopic red fiber found on the t-shirt that Chris Byers had been wearing was microscopically similar to fibers from a red bathrobe found in Jason's house that belonged to his mother. Okay. So a forensic expert apparently looked at this fiber found on Chris's shirt and then looked at this fiber from the robe and claimed that they were microscopically, microscopically similar. Okay. Numerous experts since then have looked at those samples and said there is virtually no similarities except for the fact that they're both red. They're red fibers. That's all you need to know. But it's enough to convince a jury. So well, other than, if somebody tells them. I know, I know. So other than this knife, which we know where it came from, we know how it got there, we know when it got there, which was a year prior to the murder, and this fiber thing, no physical evidence, no DNA, no nothing to point to these boys, to our boys, to the West Memphis. So uh, on March 9th, Damien's defense attorneys decided to put him on the stand. That's an interesting choice. Yeah. I mean, look, Damien, if you know anything about Damien at all, he's an incredibly smart, articulate person. But he's also a little cocky and always has been. That's just his personality. So I felt that was a huge risk. On Well, and normally, most lawyers will say you don't let the defendant testified. Well, I don't know if it was like Damien insisted that he wanted to, or, or I'm not sure what the tactic was, but the fact of the matter is on March 9th, he was put on the stand and he testified for two days. He testified that he was home on the night of the murders with his family. His family corroborated that. He testified that he was not a Satanist. He explained all of his interests, that he liked reading, particularly like Stephen King novels and watching horror movies. Those were kind of his favorite thing, which they are also one of my favorite things. So I relate to that completely. Skateboarding, studying religions, and that he was currently a practicing Wiccan. And he was asked to explain the Wiccan religion in his words, and he did. And he explained that, at, which is factually correct, that it's a nonviolent religion that reveres a goddess instead of a god, that it's more like earth worship, and it's an incredibly peaceful Again, nonviolent religion. Okay. They don't believe in God or the devil. They don't exist. 
So you can't be a Satanist if you don't believe in Satan. Yeah, but you're talking about... I know. I'm. My point being From is the that, viewpoint of the jury. Well, because we're talking about West Memphis, Arkansas. What? In the 90s. And you're talking about he, he he's not a practicing Christian. He's practicing some witchy religion. Well, like so I, I think I said he claims in our, is I think know. I've said before, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I've said before that he you know, he's the kid in the weird suit. Like right. he's the one who's different from everybody else. He doesn't else. fit the mold. Not has, at all. In his belief structure or the way he dresses. So Well yeah, he was like he was the goth kid kind of yeah. thing. You know, yeah. And he liked heavy metal music. And he and liked to research alternative religions and he and yeah. any religion other than christianity to some people is just a different form of you know right now influenced he did, by the devil well right and i mean in his testimony he did admit that he'd read about satanism because he was studying a variety of religions including you know in, in addition to the wicca and all that it was he studied catholicism he studied buddhism he studied satanism he studied i mean he was just kind of you know uh native american religious lore. I mean, he'd, he'd just been, he'd been studying it all and he has a Native American, he's part Native American. So he was interested in those kinds of things too. So he did explain that he had looked into that and that he, he had heard about people like Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey who were very big in, uh, uh, Anton LaVey was the founder of the Church of Satan, for those of you who don't know. And Aleister Crowley started OTO, Otis Oh, gosh, I don't want to say it wrong because I have a friend who is one. So look up OTO and Aleister Crowley and you'll know what it is. I believe the religion is actually called Thelemia. But anyway, it's so he was interested in learning about these things, but he wasn't he wasn't one is was kind of the point. Um, He testified for two days. And on the second day, they put this huge focus on his original statements to Detective Brian Ridge the day after the bodies were found. So there was a, a lot of, of, but they were reading a transcript. It wasn't a recording, right? Okay. So the def, uh, prosecutor, Mr. Fogelman, is just, or no, it wasn't Fogelman. It was the other one, but I can't think of his name, was just hammering away at Damien said this and Damien said that and Damien made this incriminating statement and Damien made that incriminating statement. And it was, I mean, it was just a mess. And Damien very eloquently stated that his he didn't make those statements that detective ridge made the statements he just yes or no it okay so for example detective ridge would come at him with something to the effect of so do you think uh one of the boys could have been cut up more than the other boys and damian said yeah i suppose it's possible but in the written documentation. It was Damien said that one of the boys was cut up more than the other boys. Mm. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Detective Ridge is putting words in Damien's mouth and saying he said them when the reality is he said it and asked Damien if he thought it was possible. Okay. Kind of similar to what they did to Jesse, if that makes any sense. But of course they didn't record that. No, it was transcript. It was, it was all, it was notes. So, of course, it sounds like incriminating statements when you put it that way. Yeah. You knew that one was cut up more than the others? He asked me, was it possible? He said, do you think one was hurt worse than the others? I said, oh. yeah, I guess. So, again, that particular area is one of those things where Officer Ridge told you, and that wasn't your response. You just responded about the drowning and mutilation. 
If he didn't get the answer he liked, he would go back and try to get me to say something else. And it's your testimony specifically that you aren't the one who said one was cut up more than the other. No, that I it was not. Officer Ridge who said that. I agreed with him when he said that. Okay. And if he says something different, that be he, he'd be lying about it, right? You're the one telling the truth. I wouldn't put it past him. And Damien has stuck to that story for 27 years. So, and they did the same thing to Jesse. And they did the same thing to Jason. So why wouldn't they do that? You know, I, so now after Damien got done testifying, you know, it was one of those circumstances where it was both a good and bad idea to put him on the stand, if that makes any sense. Like it. In general, it's a bad idea. I agree. I don't think it's ever necessarily the right move. But I mean, you know, whatever. Maybe Damien really wanted to. I, I really don't know why he testified. But after that, Jason actually really, really wanted to testify. But his lawyer wouldn't let him because he, you know, they're like, they, the prosecution's done such a bang up job of shredding Damien. Like, we, you know, I don't want him to shred you. Although Jason was angry because they didn't actually have a conversation about it until after the whole trial was over. And so it, it was just kind of a mess. But he was angry because he saw it as since he wasn't being allowed, Jason wasn't being allowed to testify, that he felt like his lawyer was blaming Damien, that it was that Damien did it and it was just guilt by association because he flat out says that in his final statement. Uh, and his and closing arguments. Jason was angry because Damien didn't do it. Now, to give a little bit of context, Jason also was offered a deal twice for reduced or no sentence to testify against Damien because apparently they just wanted Damien. They wanted somebody to hang for it. And Jason they refused. They have to have somebody. Jason refused so much that when he was offered twice to testify against Damien, he said no, because that would be a lie, and my mother raised me better than that. And that's a direct quote. He wasn't going to lie about his best friend. Yeah. Damien was his best friend. They did everything together. Everything. They knew each other better than anybody else did. They had talked numerous times about moving out of West Memphis together, getting an apartment like in New York or something where they could get the heck away from the poverty they were both living in because for a little bit of backstory on Damien and Jason, they were, especially Damien though, were poverty stricken to the point of half the time they didn't have water, they didn't have power, they were moving around a lot because they couldn't afford the rent. Like, I mean, it was just, they were poor. As uh, Damien likes to say, the poorest of poor white trash. Right. Hence right. why he feels that the law enforcement in that area didn't give two shits about throwing him away because he was meaningless to them. He's meaningless. He's the odd kid. He's, he's already he's been in poor. trouble he's with the law. Any, so, you know, he's not yeah. going to do anything for our society. So who cares? You he's know? already been in trouble with the law. He's, he's a bad kid. Just, we can nail it at them. Right. So Damien and Jason were tried together. But, you know, each attorney gets to call their own witnesses and right. you know so witnesses for Damien witnesses for Jason Paul Ford Jason's attorney rested his case after only calling one witness because his whole strategy was that Jason got caught up in guilt by association and Damien was the bad guy That's it Yeah That was Paul Ford's whole freaking strategy Yeah Yeah Sometimes you get a good lawyer sometimes you get a bad lawyer Well and if you watch the documentaries at all that have the actual or you look up the actual trial footage or the transcripts from the trial, which I've done all of the above, you see what a mess 
I mean, you so you had the prosecution just with this nonsensical, ridiculous, crazy theoried story about satanic ritual murders. And I mean, it was just the whole thing was insane. Then you have Damien's attorneys who are who they've tried really, really hard. I mean, they really did. They I mean, they were kind of stuck in this really weird Twilight Zone like case. But they. They they did their best and they called a lot of witnesses and, and they had alibi witnesses for Damien. They had I mean, they had all this stuff. But, you know, the prosecution did a better job of swaying the jury, but and we'll talk about it later in things that have come out since the trial, but there were serious allegations of jury misconduct pointed at a very specific person in the jury that we will talk about probably in the next episode because we're going to talk about everything that's happened since the trial. But still, even with that person trying to influence the jury on his own, the prosecutors did a bang-up job of using the inherent Christian atmosphere that is the American South. Yeah, they they had that going for them, and they had the the fact that the confession had been leaked already to the papers. Right. And they had the fact that there was a lot of emotion and people wanted somebody to pay for this. Well, I mean, you're talking about horrible three crime. beautiful eight-year-old little Cub Scouts out going out in the evening playing with their friends to be found naked and hogtied, drowned in a ditch, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, I it, mean, it's a horrific crime and they want somebody to pay and this is who they're being told did it. Right. And right. Well, and, it, you know, it's like the people who have researched the case and, and really, really understand all the legal ins and outs and, and how we got to where we got to with them being convicted and whatnot. Some of the, the family members of the victims have kind of changed their tune in recent years and and said, well, maybe, you know, maybe we, they were wrong. And I remember the most poignant thing that one of the parents said was, um, I believed what the state told me. Well, it's hard not to. I mean, they fill your head with what they want you to think. Right. So it it was such a hard case because it was such an emotionally driven case for everyone involved. I mean, like I said earlier, like those police officers who found those little bodies just had to be wrecked. I mean, there's just no way around it. And, right. the, and the parents of the kids and their siblings and the neighbors who knew them. It's, it's all traumatizing. All the students in their school. It's their traumatizing friends. for the police who found him, and then it's traumatizing for the entire community. Yeah. So... Especially a small community like West Memphis in the 90s, because it was smaller then than it even is now, and it's still a small town. And then when it, when the story spreads everywhere, you know, there's outrage. And then and Jesse's confession getting leaked on the front page of the newspaper was a huge blow. Of course they got the right guy. They got a confession. Right. So... And, I mean, I don't want to insult the intelligence of lower income people in the South. But at the same time, I think there weren't necessarily a whole lot of people in the community who could look at that and see all the inconsistencies and see it in an analytical way instead of an emotional way because it was their community. So it was like, these are our kids. Well, and if the prosecutor's doing his job, he's <clears throat> making them see it in an emotional way, not an analytical way. That's right. his job. Oh, and he... Is I to mean, steer him where he wants. The trial footage. If you watch the actual trial footage, he milks the emotion 
every single chance he gets. Oh, yeah. He's a skilled prosecutor. I'll give him that. John Fogelman, he's not a prosecutor anymore. He's a politician now, I think. But he was a skilled. He knew exactly what buttons to push when. And I mean, he he knew his stuff. Like, I'll give him that for sure. Like, props to being good at your job, I suppose. But I also appreciated if while doing your job, you were telling the truth. And the reason I bring that up is one, the uh, probation officer who helped find the bodies knew everyone in law enforcement, obviously, because he, he was one of them. And he alleges to have had a conversation with Mr. Fogelman in Mr. Fogelman's office, I believe, or in the vicinity, where he actually asked him during the trial, so is this really a satanic murder? I mean, because it just seems so far-fetched and crazy. Is it really a satanic murder? And John Fogelman looked, I believe it's Steve June. Can't remember his name now, but uh, he looked him in the eye and he said, it's not a satanic murder. It's just a murder. So he knew it wasn't a satanic He knew panic. it wasn't satanic panic. He knew that was bullshit. But he was playing it He's for playing it work. for the Christian jury. You have a right-wing, conservative, evangelical Christian jury. You say Satanism and it's over. Especially back then when satanic panic was a huge thing all over the country. So he knew what he was doing. Yeah. But that's what makes me more angry because he knew what he was doing. Because I'm also convinced not only did he know that it obviously that it wasn't a satanic murder. It was just a freaking murder. But I personally believe that he knew that Damien and Jason and Jesse were innocent. But he didn't care. We should find out for sure if he is in politics. Why? Because that's the motive for doing it if, if, if he is. Oh, of course it is. Well, here, a lot of the people involved in this case have gone on to be politicians on some level. And you know that it was on the back of this case. It's all about public opinion. Right. We don't care about the truth. We don't Ex care. Well, and isn't that most, in, unfortunately, isn't that the, just the truth across the board? That's politicians. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, isn't that just the truth across the board? That they don't actually care about truth and justice. They care about advancing their career. The bulk of them. Yeah. Not, no, I'm not going to sit here and say every single one of them is bad. And every, no, 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 no. Because not every single human is bad. But unfortunately, I feel like you have to have some unsavory character qualities to be a politician, to be a successful politician, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, for, for, yeah. In the, for the most part, yeah. I hate to say that, but I've never met a politician I liked. That helps at all. So uh, closing arguments began on March 17th, 1994. And Fogelman really just focused on Damien and basically performing an enormous character assassination on Damien. Like he barely even talked about Jason. He just, he hammered in that uh, Damien had... You know, this uh, he, he liked to draw pentagrams and he wore black and he liked heavy metal music and there's this knife. And even though it wasn't his freaking knife, but whatever. And, he you know, I mean, he just milked it for every ounce he could. And right now we're going to play you a clip of what uh, Mr. Fogelman said at the beginning of his closing argument, which just for some reason comes across to me as completely offensive. So we're going to play that for you right now. Anything wrong with wearing black in and of itself? No. Anything wrong with the heavy metal stuff in and of itself? No. 
The book of shadows, anything wrong with that in and of itself? No. But when you look at it together and you get you begin to see inside Damien Eccles. You see inside that person. And you look inside there and there's not a soul in there. Seriously, how offensive is that? You just don't say crap like that. You don't say that someone doesn't have a soul. That's just the worst. Like, seriously? First of all, you are not qualified to make a determination whether someone has a soul or not. But no, he's playing it off to he's his evangelical to jury. Christian jury. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, this man played it for every, every single, I mean, he just milked it like crazy. Um, Val Price, one of Damien's attorneys, of obviously refuted the DA's statements and kept the focus on the fact that there was no physical evidence linking Damien or the other two, but he was Damien's attorney. So linking Damien to this crime. Because even if you had believed that that robe fiber was the same as as the one on Chris's shirt, it came from Jason's house. Right. So. But it put, it supposedly puts Jason there and. But there's literally nothing putting Damien there. Other than that they were always together. But, I mean, they weren't together 24 hours a day. When I said joined, I mean, I have friends I'm, I've been joined at the hip with, but we're not together 24 hours a day. I know, but in their, in their story of how things go, right, right, right. they're always together and they were together doing but that. But my and... point is that Val Price did the right thing, in my opinion, trying to keep the focus on the evidence and not the emotional well, that's all nature. he could do. I mean, it was to say that there is no physical evidence at all. That's all the defense can Damien. do. <laughs> At that point. Yeah, I mean, and then Paul Ford, uh, Jason's attorney, who I honestly don't like at all, because he kept trying to push all the blame onto Damien. In addition to that, he didn't defend Jason, in my opinion, with any real vigor. He, he yeah. He only called one witness. Sounds I like mean, the, the type of attorney you sometimes see in, in have you ever spent time in uh, <clears throat> watching arraignments in court? Yes, I have. There's this the certain type that gets appointed to to do a, a a defense public defender duty, and they just want to get it over with. They want to plead. They want to plead. They right. want to plead. They want some sort of deal. And if the client doesn't want to take a deal, oh god, I actually have well, a lot of I mean, let's be realistic that um, court appointed attorneys don't exactly have the best reputation in general in the legal system. Well, it. Well, some are better than others. There's different systems of how that works in different areas. Yeah, but, true. And you're going to get good ones and bad ones. And in some areas, you get private attorneys that have to work a certain number of public cases. Some like here, some places they have, you know, a special. They actually set, have set an of, office, for, right? Yeah. Here, it's just our defense. All of our defense attorneys. We are in Oregon, if you don't remember, and all of our defense attorneys here in Oregon basically have to have a certain number of hours every year that they have basically donated their time to do public defense. And then there's a few that specialize in it, but they don't have some special office. It's just what they do. And yeah, but anyway, so you're going to get some that are better than others, some that just feel like they're, you know, they want to get this over with. Right. Well, because they're uh, really not getting, I mean, they're getting paid, but they're getting paid like state base pay, which is nothing compared to what they make in private practice. I mean, most lawyers make anywhere from 100 to $500 an hour. And when you're doing a public defense case, you're maybe making like 
you know, $300 a week or something. I mean, it's like a really, really, it's a huge pay cut is my point. Right. They're not getting paid for the time they're putting into exactly. it. So and, why put a bunch of time into it? Unfortunately, a lot of the larger cases like this one involve people who are not in a financial position to pay for a good high-priced attorney. It's hard to pay for a good high-priced attorney. We have family experience with that too, unfortunately. You can bankrupt somebody trying to to pay for your own defense, but uh yeah, or your family member's defense. You know, so unfortunately the system itself relies on public defenders. And I'm not down I'm not knocking all of them. There are some really awesome public defenders yes, out there. Yes, there are. We've who seen will, a few. I've seen uh at least 3 that are incredible. I mean, they put just as much if not more work into the cases than the ones you've paid, you know, $500 an hour for. Well, the difference is they're good people that they take care. it seriously. Whether they're getting paid what they Doesn't really should be getting them. paid right. or not, it's about they're there to doing to do the right thing, the right thing by the client. And justice, yeah. It's not about the money. And unfortunately, not all lawyers have the scruples for. Um, but I'm assuming you've all seen Liar Liar, and there's a whole lot of jokes in that movie about lawyers being liars. That's pretty much true, unfortunately. Not across the board, but a really large percentage because you have to have a certain... I mean, you kind of have to... To be a good lawyer, you kind of have to be able to bend the truth a little bit. That's... Well, you know, that's the thing. A lawyer legally can't lie. No, but, but they can twist and bend and telling do some... The whole, uh, voluntarily telling the whole truth is another story. They can you do know? some honesty gymnastics. I mean, let's be real. They can... You know, as long as they stay in the realm of the truth, they're fine. Um, so anyway, like I said, Val Price, Damien's attorney, really tried to hammer home to the jury that there was no evidence in the case, which was 100% true. Um, again, Paul Ford, Jason's attorney, again, I hate him. Yep, I'm saying it. I hate him. <laughs> it was a He's less than a vigorous jerk. defense. It was a less than vigorous defense, and he clearly thought that Damien was guilty. When there was no evidence to say that Damien had done anything wrong. But anyway, um, he did say one thing, though, in his closing argument that I that I agreed with is that he was making kind of slinging accusations at the prosecution and said to the jury, you know, when they couldn't find any evidence and they couldn't find anything that really pointed to any specific person in this case, the police just said, well, let's call it a satanic killing and find somebody weird. Well, pretty much true. He was right. It's the only thing he ever said that I agree with, but he's right. Because it was find the kid in the weird suit, and that was Damien. And, oh, well, I don't think a teenager could have done this alone. Oh, well, Jason's his best friend, so there you go. Oh, and here's this retarded kid telling us, you know, we can we can manipulate him to implicate everybody. Right. Boom. Case closed. Done. We got what we want. We got somebody to pin it on. We're done. We don't and need to go look for the Bojangles guy. We don't need to. Yeah, we don't need to investigate the parents. We don't, you know, family members. Don't they always say you're supposed to go for the family members? Okay, so when yeah. children are murdered, when children are murdered in this country to this day, 85% of those murders are committed by a close family member, but, someone with a personal connection. Damien, Jason, and Jesse didn't know any of those kids or their families. Because they lived on the poor side of town, Damien and Jason and right. Jesse. They all lived in trailer parks. They had no money. They were poor as dirt, as Damien says. 
which was true. And so they didn't have any reason to go over to the bougie part of town and meet the middle classers because they stuck out like a sore thumb with those people. And everybody, all the kids' families, I mean, they weren't like wealthy or anything, but it was the the middle class side of town. Kind of, you know, the other side of the tracks sort of thing. Did they ever even investigate the families? Uh, Yes, sort of. They investigated uh, Mark Byers. In fact, Mark Byers was looked at. That is uh, Christopher Byers' adoptive father, the first person to report the boys missing. Okay. Uh, Mark Byers is quite a character. If you have seen the documentaries, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not seen the Paradise Lost documentaries, you are missing out on some dramatic and sometimes hilarious stuff with Mark Byers. He's just a very, he's a very big personality. And he was very, very angry over his son being murdered, rightfully so. So I kind of let his theatrics slide because it came from a place of grief. Right. And that's clearly how he reacts to that sort of thing. So once you get used to it, it doesn't bother you as much. But he is very theatrical and he can be somewhat, uh, he can look like a bit of a loose cannon and and, uh, crazy, but he's not. I've actually personally spoken to Mark Byers online. He is one of the sweetest, kindest, and gentlest souls I've ever had the pleasure of having long-winded Facebook conversations with. He is a lovely man, and he is still, 27 years later, absolutely and completely heartbroken over the loss of his son, especially considering his wife, Melissa, Chris's mother, passed away not too terribly long after Christopher did. Presumably from, I mean, a broken heart. And uh, potentially there might have been drugs involved because she had a known drug problem, unfortunately. But um, her her autopsy was inconclusive. Um, Did they investigate any other family members? They investigated Todd Moore briefly, which was Michael Moore's father. But he was a long-haul truck driver who was out of the state at the time. Okay, yeah. So rock-solid alibi. They, of course, spoke to Pam Hobbs. Uh, Stevie's mother. They spoke to Dana Moore, Michael's mother. They spoke to Melissa uh, Byers, Chris's mother. Um, but there's one person they never spoke to. Who's that? Terry Hobbs, uh, Stevie's stepfather. They never even spoke to him? No. Hmm. We'll get into that later because there's stuff about that that has come up in the uh, 17, 18 years since. But uh, unfortunately, the prosecution succeeded in their character assassination of Damien because on March 18th, 1994, Damien and Jason were both found guilty on three counts of capital murder. And the next day they had a sentencing hearing. Damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection and Jason to life without parole. I cannot fathom how Damien and Jason's families felt, particularly Damien's. And the most vivid image I have in my head is uh, when Damien was found guilty. He had just had a baby with his girlfriend, Dominique Tier. The baby's name is Seth. Actually, it's Damien Seth Eccles, but they call him Seth. And uh, he was just a teeny tiny little baby. And Dominique, beautiful girl, long red hair, really stood out, you know, because of her beautiful long red hair. Right. And her very pale complexion looked like an Irish lass. I don't think she's Irish, but she looked Irish. And... When he was found guilty, Dominique just starts screaming 
not like screaming obscenities at the pain, the sound of pain. Right. Realizing that her son's father is going to die for something he didn't do was just, and she runs out of that room. I've never seen anyone run out of a courtroom so fast. Like even the guards like went who stand at the doorway, like threw the door open for her and stepped back because they were like, we're not getting in her way. Like she might murder us. Like she, she was so devastated. And, and Damien's poor sister, Michelle, who loves him so much was just, I mean, the whole family was devastated. Jason's family was devastated. Like he goes to prison forever for something he didn't do. These other families lost their boys, and now they're going to lose well, their boys. Well, what I have always it's, said is, uh, I call them the West Memphis Six. Six lives were taken. Six lives, six families were destroyed on three, that day. Three were taken by somebody who may be unknown at this point, and the other three were taken by the state. In, uh, now, luckily, over the years, we've had some resolutions that have happened that we will talk about in our next episode. Um, as an aside, uh, right after all three were convicted, appeals were immediately filed. Obviously. Um, so we will start from there in our next episode talking about the appeals process and all of the really crazy things that have happened in the last... What are we talking about now? So eight, nine, oh man, 18 years, 19 years. I mean, it's been a long time, but there's been a lot of really crazy things that have happened since then that we're going to talk about. There's even some new information that I have received that could be interesting to our listeners if they're interested in this case. So please keep listening. I hope you're enjoying so far. I know I'm enjoying talking about it because true crime is my favorite thing to talk about. So Um, I hope you're enjoying it, and I hope you'll join us for more episodes. So coming up next, we will be talking about the appeals and the crazy things that have happened since then, which also involve people like Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder and the Dixie Chicks. And if you think those sound like they shouldn't go together, they shouldn't, but they do. And we'll talk about they all have one thing in common. Can you guess what that might be? We'll talk about it in the next episode. You guys have a great night. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences.